Today, June 21st, is National Indigenous Peoples Day. To mark the occasion, we are featuring excerpts from various radio documentaries produced by community stations from coast to coast as part of the Resonating Reconciliation series. For a full listing of the documentaries, please visit ncra.ca slash resonating slash documentaries. The following is an excerpt from Why Can't the Past Be Past, produced at CITRFM in Vancouver, British Columbia. Christy Charles, hip-hop and R&B artist from the Musqueam Nation, expands on Sean's observations. It's like a dark history that people don't share. That's why people don't realize that it's still going on. Like, people are like, oh, get over it, get over it. Like, that happened how many years ago? Like, the last residential school closed in, like, 1996 or something like that. And then, and then, yeah, we still live under the Indian Act as First Nations people. So it's still here. Like, the residential school effect is still here. And, like, generational effects, like, I can see it because when the old people were put into residential school when they were young. They were stripped from their culture, like everybody says. But they were taught coldness, you know what I mean? Like they lived in an institution that had no love and it was just dark and they learned like, they were always getting in trouble or always doing something wrong and always being punished. So they didn't learn loving and caring because they didn't have family there. So, I'm not going to speak for everyone. Like, I don't want to, like, put a, a blanket over it or anything. But I can see it in my family, like, the generational effects of, like, alcoholism within our communities. Like, I see that as a residential school effect. Because of people, when they came out of residential school, they didn't know how to cope. Like, they came back to the communities, and they had all this culture and love, and they're, like, so confused and... And there's that disconnect. And it's like, how do you deal with it? And all this stuff that happened in residential school is absolutely horrible. So from eyewitness, people have drowned their sorrows, right? Drowned their memories of of residential school. And that's that's where the substance abuse and alcoholism came from. I can say from in my family, that's how I see it, but I'm not gonna generalize it and say that's how everybody is. Now knowing the cause and the effects, Clearly, the next step is recovery. And in its own way, the Canadian state recognizes this as well. As to the sincerity of the state's effort, I find it questionable. Chrissy's Charles expands on what I mean and expands on the state's approach to reconciliation and recovery. There's one thing I want to say about uh, residential school um, and the payments that they get. I think that is absolutely ridiculous. Yes, it's good for some people. Yeah, they get money and it's helping them out. But really, they put them through hell all over again. I just happened to be um, at my cousin's work one day, and she was the one who was on the other end of the line when elders would call up and be like, hey, I want to apply for my money. Send me the package. And the package, when you open it, you're reading it, and it's a point system that they use for the war. You know, if somebody lost a leg in the war, here's this much money. If you lost two legs, here's this much money. But in the package, it shows, it asks you, like, were you sexually molested? Were you raped? Were you, was it oral? Was it touching? And you have to tally up your points, and at the end, however many points you get, that's how much money you receive. And... Um, my cousin was on the other end of the line and 
it just so happened an elder called when I was there and she was like she had to put her on hold and she started crying she's like I don't know what to do anymore I was like what do you mean she goes these elders are calling me and it's like a suicide line they don't know what to do they're like reaching out because they're crying and bawling because they had to go through this process and it just opened all these wounds again and I'm just like oh that's exactly what I mean when I say like the government needs to reconcile how they're trying to take care of our people because they're doing it in the wrong way they're totally doing it in the wrong way you just heard an excerpt from why can't the past be the past produced at CITRFM in Vancouver, British Columbia. To hear this feature in full, visit ncra.ca slash resonating slash documentaries. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour. My name is Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Centre for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe Gakin the homeland of the Métis Nation and the historical territory of the Nahiwak and the Nakota. We seek to provide listeners with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from figures rarely addressed by major media. This week's episode first goes to air on June 21st, which is recognized in Canada as National Indigenous Peoples Day, a day dedicated to recognizing and celebrating the cultures and contributions of the diverse and unique First Nations, Inuit and Métis peoples, and communities in this land we now call Canada. The interviews selected for today's broadcast will therefore relate to themes related to Indigenous struggle in the context of a history of colonialism and genocide. On this week's program, ongoing genocide and the plight of Indigenous peoples in Canada and abroad. Bruce Clark has been arguing for the past two decades that modern courts have been using chicanery and tricks to suppress the fundamental fact of indigenous sovereignty over their traditional territory. He describes these instruments in several essays which comprise the 2018 book Ongoing Genocide Caused by Judicial Suppression of the Existing Aboriginal Rights. Bruce Clark spent 46 years defending the rights of natives across North America. A scholar specializing in the legal history of the evolving relationship between natives and newcomers, he holds an MA in constitutional history and a PhD in comparative law jurisprudence. Clark's attempts to argue the sovereignty of indigenous peoples and warn court officials they could be complicit in judicially instigated genocide got him charged with criminal contempt of court in 1997, leading to a three-month jail sentence. He has since been disbarred. The Global Research News Hour reached out to Dr. Clark on National Indigenous Peoples Day to learn more about his insights and to put some current stories facing Canada's indigenous population into context. Pleasure to have you on the program, Bruce. Thanks for having me. Before we talk about the illegal instruments and statutes that have been deprived uh, Indigenous peoples uh, of their rights over successive generations, could you establish for our listeners the basis for the argument of Indigenous sovereignty uh, in the law of the land? Well, the Indians were here first, and, and when, they, when they were here alone, they were sovereign. Obviously, there was nobody to tell them they're not sovereign. And uh, um, sovereignty, as it was defined in the 19th century, um, required um, 
I've been up all night. I'm trying to trying to wake myself up. Um, it 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 uh, re- generally was thought to require the extermination of a whole race or or a, a large proportion of a race, but that, that there was a, a, a different definition provided as a, res- a result of World War II and the experience with the Holocaust and. And the, that consequence is that there are five different forms of genocide that are uh, defined by the United Nations Convention for the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, 1948. And, and the first two are the ones that are concern, concern us most. The first one is killing. Um, obviously, the killing of a, of a group or portions of a group is a form of genocide. Article B, the, the one that I'm relying upon, is the imposition of serious bodily or mental harm against a group for the purpose of altering its character or its content. And that's the one that, that I feel is being... Uh, broken by the courts and by the judges and and the lawyers um, because uh, they they look at things from a different cultural perspective um, the Indians have a conservative cultural perspective that is they they conserve their natural conservationists they don't take more than they need from the land whereas uh, our culture, I'm not native, uh, tends to take whatever the land can hold, and then beyond that, uh, there's a greed factor that's, that's uh, characteristic of Western European civilization. And whenever Indians go to court, they're always up against this this difference between cultures about how they think and how how the people who they are litigating with think. For example, the the Trans Mountain Pipeline situation, the people who are putting the pipeline in uh, are, are aware of the risk that there'll be a spill, and, but they feel they can mitigate against that risk and, uh, and they're willing to take that risk on. The objecting Indians aren't willing to take that risk on because it, it to them, has uh, endless consequences. If the oil gets into the spawning grounds of the fish, it can mean the end of a fishery. And, and this is something that the Indians take extremely seriously, that the fishery has been supporting them for many centuries, and and they feel it's not their prerogative to do God's work and decide which species are going to survive and which aren't. Um, so it's because of this fundamental difference in the way people think that Indians tend to lose out in court almost whenever they go. And, uh, well, whenever they go, it's pretty, it's pretty much... a a foregone conclusion that Indians who go to court are going to do badly in court. Uh, and um, 
that well, well yes, except if, if 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 there's a solely a monetary motive, there are there are of course Indians who are acculturated and 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 think more in the Western European style of greed and interest in money being paramount value, but. I'm, I'm talking and more concerned about those who, those Indians who are more what one thinks of when one thinks of a person who's culturally an Indian. Dr. Clark, I, I wanted to uh, maybe bring forward the fact that the Canadian Constitution did uh, initially acknowledge the, the, the Royal Proclamation of 1763 and that, 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 that Indigenous sovereignty uh, argument, but certain mechanisms were taken on. Uh, I believe, beginning with the Indian Act, to deal with this uh, so-called Indian problem. Could you, you maybe, you briefly mentioned uh, that uh, these mechanisms that were introduced at the, the the judicial level that helped to undermine what the Constitution acknowledged was that sovereignty. Well, yes. Um... The, 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 what the proclamation says is that whereas it's just and reasonable and essential to our interest and the security of our colonies, that the several nations or tribes of Indians with whom we are connected and who live under our protection should not be molested or disturbed in the possession of such parts of our dominions and territories as, not having been ceded to us or purchased by us, from the Indians, remains Indian country. So basically, until the Indians consent, it's Indian country, and it's trespassing for non-Indians to go there or to think that they're they're going to develop it. And then that's that's awfully clear. Uh, the, the the use of the English language in the proclamation is. Is really really crystal clear. If, if if an act we the non-natives are doing is, is is causing molestation and disturbance of the Indians in the possession of the territory, uh, that's a crime against the royal proclamation. And one of the things that's perplexing in our non-native society is that these suicide statistics that one encounters uh, when one is looking at Indian societies are, are extraordinarily high relative to the suicide standards for uh, Western European types. And everybody's always perplexed at how come the Indians are killing themselves at greater self-rates than other people. And it seems to me that it's this profound cultural clash that goes on between the two societies, and the Indians uh, are forced to perceive themselves as perpetual losers. Uh, they, they are persons who started out with a, with a continent, and a, an extraordinarily beautiful continent, as it happens, and they now have very, very little of that of that continent, and they're they're very much uh, contained in what they can do here. Um, 
it, it was said in the proclamation that the lands were to be reserved for the Indians as their hunting grounds until they consented to the selling of them. Well, uh, all over Canada, provinces passed laws that, uh, having to do with hunting, and they all interfere with Indians, and, and they all molest or disturb Indians within the meaning of the proclamation, but that just doesn't make any difference. It, it, it doesn't make any difference to the judges. When they, when they hear that, the judges feel, well, what's, what's better here? Conservation, when we get a chance to be conversation, that's always what Indians are talking about. So we're going to conserve these animals and convict the Indians for having harvested them. And, uh, we don't seem to see the hardship in that. There's sort of an egalitarianism going on that people seem to think, well, if Indians can get six fish when they go fishing, uh, white people should be able to get six fish when they go fishing. There shouldn't be a law for the Indians and a law for the white people. But there is a law for the Indians, and, and, and there is a law for the white people, and it has deep historical roots, and it's an, it's an integral part of the rule of law, and the ignoring of it denies the fact that we are at least ostensibly a country founded upon respect for the rule of law, and we don't do that. The, the judges follow their own feelings, their own emotions, much as people just generally do. Uh, judges don't seem to be any different in that respect. I know that you yourself had taken. Uh, well, you spoke of a, a catch twenty-two in terms of uh, efforts to resolve the the issues around uh, indigenous sovereignty within the courts, both the lower courts, courts, and at the su- supreme court level. And uh, like uh, neither level would address it. Do you, do you want to talk about uh, that uh, ordeal? Well, I, when I when I would go to the lower courts, I would say, uh, "You're I would say to the judge, Mr. Judge, your assumption that you have jurisdiction in this case is a wrong assumption, and the the effect of it, arguably, is." genocide within the meaning of Article 2B of the Genocide Convention. Now, as soon as I I use the word genocide in relation to the courts, invariably the judges get very hysterical. They, they, They really, really don't like that word. They don't like it to hear it and it applied to themselves. And so basically what they do is just shut the procedure down. They either just leave or say they're not going to hear any more on that subject, or they merely, they, they several times have said, don't mention the word constitution again in my court. I'm not, I'm not here to hear of that. Uh, what do you have to say about how many fish did this Indian, Indian take? That's, that's all we're going to do today. And, and, and so the, the only recourse one has when the judges don't listen to the law or simply don't care about listening to it 
is to appeal. And, and invariably, when one appeals, one gets to the Court of Appeal, and, and what invariably the Court of Appeals say is they decide the same way that the trial judge decided for the same reason. And they don't go into the reasons or describe what the reasons are. They don't deal with genocide. Uh, they don't deal with its definition. They just simply basically say no. Well, then it becomes a question of appealing to the Supreme Court of Canada. Now, there is no right of appeal in this country to the Supreme Court of Canada. You have to get permission to appeal, or it's called leave to appeal. And uh, the same thing happens there. Invariably, when I, when I advise the court that the basis for this appeal is the allegation of the genocidal consequence of, of the suicides from, from the refusal of the courts to address the genocide issue, and then it really does have to be addressed. And at that point, the judges invariably have said, so far, we're not going to hear that, therefore you're not going to get permission to appeal. And, and, and that's simply the end of it. It's go home now. And, and that's happened approximately 40 times in, in courts in, in Canada and in the United States. They, they, they face the same problem, and I've acted as counsel and an expert witness down there as well. So I, roughly 40 times I've gone through this process of raising an issue that, that the system does not want to address and being all-powerful and not subject to appeal. When the Supreme Court of Canada says it's not going to hear the appeal, there's no appeal from that. There used to be an appeal from that until 1949. And, and uh, on the Indian cases, the Indians did fairly well. It, was, it used to be an appeal to, to England, to the British Imperial Privy Council. It was a, a constitutional appeal court set up for the whole of the British Empire. And, and the Indians did fairly well in that court. But for some reason, the, the, the judges who were selected for it uh, thought differently. So you're referring, you're referring to an 1897 precedent with the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council in England, if I'm not well, mistaken. Yes, there's, there's one in 1897. The earlier one is 1888, and it's actually the more important one, 1888 called the St. Catherine's Milling case, and it, it, it basically said the Royal Proclamation says what it says, and we have to obey it. And, um, and for that reason, I tend to cite that in every case to the courts, because they don't pay any attention to the law. But this leading case that was decided in this particularly high court has said they have to. So basically, we have there. There is a legal system. There is a, such a thing as the rule of law, and and the law to do with Indians is basically a good law. 
It's just that the judges won't obey it. Mm. Could you talk? That's the problem. Could you talk about that 1949? Uh, you you said that 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 things changed in 49, uh, where I guess the Supreme Court of Canada uh, effectively s- uh, you replaced this uh, privy count, this judicial committee of the Privy Council in England as the uh, the highest court of appeal, as it were. Do you th- was that a a deliberate effort to block the the indigenous sovereignty argument? Do you think? In my view, there's absolutely no question of that. Okay. Interesting. Um, so I, I, I'm just now looking at the present. Uh, there, there have been some interesting developments, uh, the, the, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which I think we touched on earlier. There's also been this, uh, the, the term genocide has come up in the context of the uh, inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Uh, I just wanted to get your thoughts about uh, the, the, the fact that, that the, the term genocide has been uh, expressed you know, in relation to you know, that, and, and you know, connect that with the the kinds of arguments you've been putting forward about indigenous sovereignty. Is that uh, is there a consistency there in terms of uh, what you're arguing? Well, it, it, it's very hard to apply my argument to the to the missing and murdered women situation. Uh, in, genocide, as it's defined uh, internationally and, and domestically in Canada is, is a situation which uh, comes in, in a mass form on purpose for the purpose of cutting down the numbers of, of the race or, or assimilating the race and so that it essentially passes out of existence. And the, the, the situation with the missing and murdered women is more like murder to me, than fitting the definition of genocide. Okay. Um, do you have any cautions about, uh, you know, when you have, uh, when you see uh, indigenous people or, or Indians, you, you, you use the term Indian, um, you know, looking to, uh, you know, looking to the courts uh, to resolve their issues? I mean, they're, they're, there's the current issue around Trans Mountain and uh, you know, efforts to uh, go back to this uh, a court of appeal. I mean, what what uh, what mechanisms uh, would you recommend if if these courts are you know, as I understand it, kind of designed to suppress the uh, indigenous sovereignty argument and uh, um, you know I- effectively continue to act uh, you know on behalf of the the wealthy entrenched interests of this uh, of what we call Canada. I mean, what 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 is a uh, uh, what kinds of steps would you be inclined to recommend to the, the various uh, uh, bands, uh, various First Nations that are trying to uh, assert their, uh, their, their sovereignty? Yes, well, over the past 46 years, I feel I have, just, I have tried every humanly possible device for persuading uh, judges to address the law. I, I didn't start out on day one calling a spade a spade. It was, there was a lot of the, the, the normal soft peddling and, and euphemism that has to go on in court because of, its, of, because of the respect dimension of, of having to, 
show and feel respect for courts. And I, I followed that for 15, 20 years and, and was just as polite and, and, as any other lawyer. But I, I got to the point where a spade had to be called a spade. And, and as soon as one calls the, the name of the spade that happens to be genocide, it closes everything down. But it's all closed down anyway. And so I, my attitude is it, 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 uh, there's really no alternative but to tell the truth and hope that someday some judge will address the truth. That was Bruce Clark, author of the recent book Ongoing Genocide Caused by Judicial Suppression of the Existing Aboriginal Rights. You can read Bruce Clark's articles at the site dissidentvoice.org. You can also reach him through his personal site, ongoinggenocide.com. Coming up, a discussion with one of the representatives of a community attempting to stop the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. Please stay tuned for that. You're listening to the National Indigenous Peoples Day edition of the Global Research News Hour, airing on Winnipeg-based radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. We are also podcast at the website globalresearch.ca. Reuben George is manager of the Tisleil Wotuth Nation Sacred Trust Initiative, which is mandated to stop the Trans Mountain Pipeline from happening. He's also the grandson of the late chief poet and actor Dan George. He joins us now by phone from Vancouver. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Reuben George. Yep, and he was an environmentalist. <laughs> okay, very complete, uh, that resume. Um, so could you start off by giving our listeners some background on your territory? Well, to play with the nation, it, 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 um, it, the whole city of Vancouver encompasses our territory that we share borders with, with Musqueam and, and Squamish. And um, it's, uh, yeah, that's it. It's, 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 a, it's a pretty big traditional territory, but our reservation is only one squared mile. Could you remind us what is at stake for you and your people if the pipeline project, the Trans Mountain Pipeline project, goes ahead? There are so many things that 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 we have done to prove that it will go wrong. We did a 1,200-page assessment of the Kinder Morgan Pipeline, working with world-renowned scientists that have explained. See, here's some here's some key things. Within hours, a million people will be sick. Within hours, 500,000 birds will die. If we, we don't have to look very far in the past um, to see what kind of destruction it causes. You look at Exxon Valdez, um, over 25 years later, it's still a big mess. It's still not the same. And then we did a, a, a spill analysis. 87% chance, not if, but when the spill will happen. And then we did a cleanup analysis that you can't clean it up. And that was proven when there were, was a spill in 2007. And, and their experts didn't know where it was going, but we found it first where the oil was was, was being brought to by the current. And and so, you know, the, the, the things won't change. And then it's not but if, but when a spill will happen. Were there... And, oh, sorry, go ahead. And, and not to mention the economics. We also did an economic study. Um, it's going to cost $11.8 billion. The direction of, of... I remember there was a leak study one. Harper was in office, and it was done by the federal government, and they said within 10 years, and that was not too long ago, when he was in office two years ago, or th- almost three years ago, he said he said within 10 years, 
these pipelines will be obsolete. And that was a Stephen Harper pro pipeline um, sir, um, study that they've done, proven that they'll be obsolete. So how could they pay back in, in a 40-year time frame when the rest of the world, including Canada, is shifting towards green energy? So our economic study has said that. And um, there's too many reasons why we say no. The tax breakdown, for example, 35% tax goes to um, Alberta. 15% tax goes to Canada. Less than 2% goes to BC, taking all the risk with no benefit. Mm. So, as you know, last year there was a federal court appeal ruling saying that uh, you know there, there was uh, not proper consultations done with uh, you know with your uh, nation and and with other uh, First Nations. So this time around, did the feds respect that ruling? No, it's worse. But you know, it's you know, it's 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 ridiculous about that. Is First Nations here? have won two, over 250 legal cases against resource extraction projects like this that, that just don't make sense. We're winning 90% of our court cases. And those, 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 that's a fair and just process. With this process, you know, when, when we won last time, Stephen Kelly, for example, put in 20% of Kinder Morgan's application on behalf of Kinder Morgan, then was hired by the National Energy Board, who was reviewing this process. So three other people who work for Kinder Morgan were employed by Canada and Kinder Morgan, including members of the ministerial committee that they try to unscramble an egg that the mess that the National Energy Board created. Kim Baird was a former employee of Kinder Morgan as well, and she's reviewing this. And this is when they didn't own the pipeline. Now that they own the pipeline, we'll go to court again. We'll prove again that it's that it's not good for our economy, not good for our land, not good for our people, not good for jobs. There's, and not only that, it's a disaster and a time bomb waiting to happen. Let alone that. Uh, can I share one more thing? Certainly. So I went to the Kinder Morgan AGM a couple of years ago. I, I got got into it with uh, Richard Kinder because I, I explained to the shareholders how dangerous it is, and and um, got in a little bit of argument with him. He got very angry. And, and, I, and I told the shareholders, if I was wrong, he wouldn't be mad. If I was wrong, he'd be okay. But he knows I'm right, and that's why he's angry. I said to the shareholders, put investment where, 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 where it's a good investment, not a blockbuster deal. Mm-hmm. This block, this deal is, is crashing. And they listened. Their stock fell by 60%, $350 billion company. Their dividends were cut by 75%. And, and, and they listened. So right now, what, what Canada is doing and Trudeau is doing, and mind you, red flags go up, and every single business person knows this, that politicians, accountants, and lawyers don't make business choices, that business people do. And we're hearing that over and over again, that red flags are going up. I mean, they, could, they could not sell the pipeline, yeah. Kinder Morgan. And they, and they said that their own AGM, because they couldn't sell it in one year, they made Trudeau buy it. And he did to support his rich friends and made a political choice doing that, which is which is a disaster for him. Um, Ruben George, I, you did, in, in spite of the, the concerns, you did participate in this new round of round of consultations. Can can you point to anything specific that you saw or did that that really, um, really you upset you about, you know, about uh, you know, they should have gotten the message, you got to do your consultations properly. But, I mean, b- beyond what you just mentioned about, you, what, what, can you talk about some you know, part of the engagement that, uh, that really rankled you? Well, the timeline, for one, 
How how could you like for example the federal court of appeal, our twelve hundred pages system. What we ended up submitting was a four hundred and seventy page document. That they took over six months. They said, you know what, six months. We're we're gonna we're gonna give our answer. No, it's way longer than that. Not way longer, a little bit longer, I should say. Sorry. And and um, that was to review that because they wanted to see, and there was a just process. The timelines that they gave us were ridiculous, just ridiculous. And and mind you, the last time they did this, um, we found some leaked documents that they made up their mind even before they consulted with us. And this is all when they didn't own the pipeline. Now they own the pipeline. There's so much conflict of interest that, that is going on here that we need a fair and just process. And, and timeline was probably the one that bugged me the most. What do you say to the uh, the, the Trudeau government statements uh, indicating that it'd be placing eight conditions on the construction of the pipeline to address uh, the concerns that you've raised, uh, in addition to the 156 proposed by the National Energy Board? Uh, uh, you know, in, in addition, they, they said that Indigenous nations would be offered the opportunity to purchase equity stake in the project, uh, up to 100 percent of the pipeline could potentially become owned by First Nations. So how, how significant? You know, that's, that's as desperate as what it's saying is that we need to build this pipeline to fight climate change. That's like, that's like giving somebody a cigarette to, to, to fight cancer. And it's, it's ridiculous that they're doing that and getting in First Nations involved. You know, you know what that it sounds like to me? It sounds like economic smallpox. Let's give them a blanket of the economics, but it's econ- economic smallpox. That's what that is. And and it's and it's I, what I hope for is that the First Nations that that are signing, which is peanuts, um, like trading beads again, that they'll do their due diligence like we did, Let's and they'll understand. And and if they want to talk, we'll 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 work with we'll we'll help them to work with a world renowned economist that we work with, and they'll see that this economically doesn't make sense for Tuskegee Nation, for British Columbia, and for Canada. Let's speak about some of those First Nations uh, that that did decide to support this. As far as you know, did they get the chance to reevaluate their position on the basis of the scientific and other evidence that that was not presented uh, or that was not provided in the first go round? Is that something that should have happened? I have no idea, but I could tell you this: fifty fifty three nations signed um, a year ago, and that shrank by ten. So, so there's something going on. So, I'm, I'm not expert on it. I don't know what they're talking about. Or what their how they came to their position. What I hope is they do their due diligence, and I believe ten have because it used to see like I say in the fifties, now now it's ten less. So um so I, I think I think that's the direction that it's going in. Do you have any thoughts about the consequences uh, for other communities and and other projects if the government is allowed to approve this pipeline expansion uh, against your community's wishes? Can you ask that again, please? Oh yeah, I'm just wondering, given given the process and and the fact, you know, as you say that that they didn't respect, in your view, the uh, the federal court of appeals ruling. What would be the consequences uh, for other communities and and potentially other projects? I mean, does this set any kind of a a precedent if this uh, pro this pipeline project is allowed to go through, given the the kind of consultations and the process that's already taken place? Um. I believe this. The Canadian Constitution protects our Indigenous rights. Like I said earlier, we won 250 legal cases. That's 90%. I'm confident that it won't go the way that you're saying, that we will win. Okay. And and by the way, I'm more confident than ever before. We did 1,200-page study assessment on that. We did 
spill analysis. We did an analysis that you can't clean it up. We did an economic study, our 400-page, 70-page submission to the Federal Court of Appeal. And now we're doing it. We just finished an air quality study. And what we're doing is a health study. So we have more on board to win this time around than we did last time. May I ask, what do you think of the way the media and politicians have been representing your position uh, I mean, have, have your concerns around the Trans Mountain uh, Pipeline project and similar projects been adequately relayed to the broader public? No. 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 A lot, lot of it has been social media, and um, and and uh, it's, it's, it's it hasn't been like for all along. We we've been we've been we've been pushing our agenda, and um, I think uh, just Tuesday was the first time in a very long ever that. First time ever we got that much media in Canada, right across Canada. But when we started, you know, nine years ago, we did a town hall meeting and, and it was all word of mouth and nine people showed up. Or no, no, about two dozen people showed up. And then now we're at the point where we, we do our due diligence. We do our town hall meetings. We do the social media. We do those things that we know that works to the point where 90% of Burnaby residents supported the Slaywich Nation and soon Canada for not consulting because they were properly educated on the true facts. And that's that's our goal is now we're gonna ramp it up and, and now that now that we're finally getting lots of really good media, we're gonna ramp it up and and we're, we're gonna start to explain to Canadians the true facts of the destruction it causes and who it truly services and, and the and the debt that they're gonna be put in because of Trudeau's political choice to support its rich buddies. Ruben George, I really want to thank you for uh, taking the time to, to speak with us. Thank you very much, and um, have a good day. Okay, take care. Okay, bye. While the corporate press, much of the independent or alternative press, and even progressive publications tend to locate the majority of their coverage of indigenous struggles on the North American continent, there's an entire faction of the human family whose plight gets systematically downplayed, if not completely ignored, in media discourse. According to a January 2019 statement published by the United Nations Development Program, there are between 370 and 500 million indigenous peoples in existence around the world. They're spread across 90 countries. They live in all geographic regions and represent 5,000 different cultures. They embody complex and extensive systems of knowledge and speak the overwhelming majority of the world's 7,000 human languages. For more than 15 years, the online publication Intercontinental Cry, as part of its focus, has been telling stories of the Maori, the Maasai, Munduruku, Mapuche, and other indigenous nations around the world that audiences in Canada and throughout the Western world rarely ever hear about. Winnipeg-based John Aniwanika Shirto is the founder and editor of IC. He joins us now to discuss a couple of the more significant stories of Indigenous struggle happening on the world stage. John, it's great to have you back on the Global Research News Hour radio program for this special National Indigenous Peoples Day episode. Thanks for making the time. For sure. Uh, it's great to be back. And, yeah, always enjoy uh, talking to you. Now, to start our conversation, do you have any thoughts, uh, first of all, about how official bodies like the UN actually compile their statistics on Indigenous peoples worldwide? I mean, what do you think of the UN estimate of 370 million to 500 million Indigenous peoples around the world? Does that sound right to you? 
Well, no, it's 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 off by by a long shot. Um, see, the, there, there's actually a pretty significant problem with um, the way they tally the number because they tally it based on what nation states report. And you know, there are plenty of, of nation states like China and Burma and um, uh, I reckon Nigeria. There's, there's several um, who don't uh, who don't officially recognize themselves as having indigenous peoples. They consider them to be ethnic minorities. So in this count that the UN uh, provides, those ethnic minority communities, uh, which make up a good 600 million people, um, aren't included. Um, the Center for World Indigenous Studies, where I serve as treasurer, um, created the uh, Fourth World Atlas back in 2012, or 2002, sorry, where they estimated that there are actually um, um, 1.3 billion um, indigenous, quote-unquote, indigenous peoples, including ethnic minority communities, who would self-identify as indigenous throughout the world. Interesting. So it's a, a startling difference. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. There are a couple of major stories that you'd wanted to bring to the attention of our listeners. I, I think they both connect with the theme of genocide, which has been resurrected in Canadian national discourse following the release of the report of the inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Canada. The first of these IC stories had to do with the Adivasi in India, the indigenous tribal peoples in India, forest dwellers numbering in the millions who are being forced off their traditional territories in the name of conservation. These actions seem to stem from uh, an, Indian, an Indian Supreme Court ruling in February. Uh, yeah, that's can, right. Can you provide us with some background on that story? Well, um, there has been a, a pretty strong uh, conservation movement uh, in India for years now that has uh, been very, uh, has a very, um, um, I guess, conventional um, uh, view of, of what conservation should be, and that is like conservation without, uh, without people, right? So there's um, been various efforts to create vast uh, conservation areas uh, throughout the the nation states, and in many cases, that has been um, uh, it's been necessary to remove the indigenous or um, Adivasi and, and, and other forest dwellers living in those areas. And these days, the uh, conservation agenda has grown exponentially. Um, in 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 February, um, the uh, Supreme Court pushed forward that ruling. Uh, directing all of India's 16 states to evict as many as 2.3 million people uh, whose land claims were rejected under the uh, Forest Rights Act, uh, the FRA, also known as the uh, Tribal Peoples Act. Um, there's a, a small chance that the uh, ruling can be overturned in, uh, in on July 24th, but uh, given the utter and complete silence of the Modi government, it's, it's far more likely that the court is going to reaffirm the uh, eviction order. And... That, that, that spells disaster, um, not only for the 2.3 million whose land claims have been you know, rejected um, under auspicious means, or uh, suspicious means, I should say, um, but also for um, all other um, Adivasi and, and forest dwellers whose lands have been recognized. It's just like it's coming to be like an open season situation here. Hmm. Now, uh, is this really all about conservation, or might there be other interests that, uh, for whom it would be advantageous to get rid of all of these indigenous people, the Adivasi? Well, 
I think, uh, ironically, uh, conservation and the uh, interest of corporations to exploit these newly emptied lands is um, are two sides of the same coin here. Um, it's, it's important to note, actually, that uh, in addition to this Supreme Court ruling, there is um, a new amendment that is being drafted, um, uh, sorry, uh, an amendment to the British Area India Forest Act, and it's been drafted in part by the head of WWF India. And this, this amendment, which was recently leaked uh, to the press, um, includes a huge program of militarization of India's forests and, and tiger reserves. It gives uh, a permit to forest department, uh, forest department officials um, to basically shoot people on site um, to quote-unquote prevent forest offenses. Um, it also gives these officials the right to search, seize the property of, a, and arrest any citizens they want without any proof of wrongdoing. And this is supposedly this is this is for conservation. <laughs> um, but of course, it also opens the door for you know endless opportunities to to, to exploit these uh, newly emptied lands. And you can bet your butt that uh, there is a very long uh, line of. Uh, corporate executives who are watching very closely <laughs> for, for, for chances, uh, you know, to get in. You mentioned the the shoot-on-site scheme. As I understand it, there have already been multiple deaths from this whole scheme. What, what do you estimate would be the fates of these people should they be successfully evacuated? And, and where would they go? Uh, how would they be impacted as a people? Well, um, as we see in those cases with, uh, with evictions, um, you know, in indigenous peoples like the communities themselves will just be broken apart and destroyed. They'll uh, they'll lose their uh, their economies, their uh, their land-based cultures. Um, they'll flood to wherever they can go. And we even saw a good example of that in in Winnipeg a few years ago when the uh, Lake Saint Martin First Nation was evicted from from their territory. Um, everybody fled to Winnipeg, and you know the level of um, Drug abuse, um, violence towards women, um, uh, youth getting involved in, 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 in crimes and, and gangs, um, um, suicide rates all skyrocketed. And it'll be the same thing here, only on a much, much larger scale. John, talk about your second story uh, about the Yazidi. Uh, we, we heard about them in the context of the ISIS attacks of 2014. Thousands displaced, thousands of women and girls subjected to sex slavery and worse. They formed an autonomous government in 2017, and, and now they're being subjected to a genocide at the hands of the Kurds and the Iraqi government. Pro- provide us, please, with some details about those developments and why they're happening. Well, um, ultimately, they're, they're, they're happening because uh, the Yazidi are um, not, um, they don't follow uh, the Islamic faith. Um, they are, you know, they, they follow their own culture. And um, in, in 2014, um, ISIS made it their mission to um, destroy um, uh, the Yazidi people and their, and their way of life. Um, subsequently, you know, three years after the after the um, attacks in, in 2014, they started um, working to create a provisional government, which was formally established in July 2017, um, with the daily and technical and technical support 
of the uh, Center for World Vision Studies. Um, and, you know, things are we're actually starting uh, to look up for the Yazidi. Uh, starting in, in 2018, the Iraq government opened the door to the uh, to discussions and to the restoration of the uh, um, Yazidi people. Um, unfortunately, um, the Prime Minister of Iraq decided to give the uh, Kurdish regional, regional government military and political authority over the nation of uh, Yazidikan, which means the land of the Yazidi people, um, filling a promise that the um, uh, then unelected uh, prime minister made uh, to uh, to the Kurdish people. And after that, you know, it just started, you know, a, a very uh, familiar and, and very painful song started to start to play again with the Kurdish government um, committing what the provisional government of Zidikan describes as act of genocide, uh, with the uh, Iraqi government and the U.S. government being complicit in those acts. Um, and in, for, for example, the um, uh, Kurdish people were uh, forcing the uh, Yazidi people into, uh, or Yazidi children into um, Christian homes, uh, forcing them to abandon their, uh, their way of life. Their, their culture and their religion. Well, in May of this year, um, a mysterious wave of fires began to rip through Yazidi croplands. Um, tens of thousands of, of acres of um, you know new crop has, has now been, been lost. This land stretches from the Iranian border in the east all the way to the Mediterranean coast in the west. Um, and ISIS has, has claimed responsibility for several of the fires, um, claiming that they're targeting the, the lands of, of heretics and uh, those who uh, they believe collaborate with the, uh, with the Iraqi security forces. Mm. And I guess like the, the, uh, the core ultra-conservative um, position of, of, of ISIS specifically, uh, and the, the reason, the core reason for their mission is uh, because they believe that the word uh, Yazidi means followers of Satan. Um, but it's, the Yazidi say that that is an incorrect interpretation and that their name actually means the followers of God. Um, mm. But regardless of that, um, you know, ISIS and you know the Kurdish um, regional government are, um, well, certainly not acting in, in, uh, in, in good faith for the, for the benefit of all here. <laughs> mm. And there is, as I understand it, there's a kind of an extortion attempt being made to uh, to get the uh, Yazidi to to comply. Yeah. Um, see, this is a this is a very um, complex situation, and it's it's changing from day to day. And uh, unfortunately, the it's quite difficult to um, to get updates. Um, from from Yazidikan due to lack of resources and uh, and just the the sensitive nature of this entire thing, um, but there 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 are more more importantly um, active negotiations going on with uh, various um, heads of state and uh, government departments like Switzerland and India, um, who are you know working to um, resolve this and to uh, ensure that the um, Yazidi people and uh, others in the uh, region can you know thrive and 
uh, have and be able to live their own lives in, 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 in peace. Hmm. John, these uh, sorts of stories, um, why is it that they seem, in your opinion, after doing this for 15 plus years, that these sorts of stories fail to generate much attention in the international press, even by so-called progressive media? That is a very difficult question. Um, honestly, you know, if you had asked me that a year ago, I would have had the perfect answer for you. But, but these days, it's, it's uh, I don't know, best I can figure is it just comes down to plain old greed. And as we're seeing with the um, denial of genocide here in Canada, uh, it's, it's racism. You know, there's this, um, you know, moral notwithstanding clause that many media outlets carry that gives everybody a convenient way to just ignore the, uh, not just the, the, the plights, but the, the very existence of, uh, specifically of Indigenous and ethnic minority communities. And, you know, um, like in, in most cases, the, the stories that do get covered are the ones that the uh, editors and uh, think that they can make a profit of them. And uh, it's a, I don't know, it's, it's just, it's, it's a very disgusting um, thing, but that, that, that seems to be the, uh, the, the thread that um, exists in this, uh, in this e- ecosystem. Well, I, I think listeners should be encouraged to, to try to uh, introduce a bit of biodiversity, I guess, in, in, in your ecosystem remark. And uh, check out your site for more details about these and other stories. How else can listeners support your media platform? Well, um, they can join us over at uh, p- uh, patreon.com slash indigenous journalism. And uh, there they can um, become members and uh, get some cool free stuff like a free shirt or a free book and, and access to a monthly a weekly report that we are uh, about to start publishing. Um, and also, uh, most importantly, to uh, share our stories with um, every um, contact that they have, because many of the stories that we do cover are literally not covered uh, anywhere else um, in Canada or America or anywhere else, really, globally. John Aniwanika Shirkto, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. We've been speaking with John Aniwinika Shirto. He's the founder and editor of Intercontinental Cry. You can find the site at the URL intercontinentalcry.org. Thank you for listening to this special National Indigenous Peoples Day edition of the Global Research News Hour. The show airs regularly on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. We are also podcast on the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. Music on today's show was from Sunset Ceremony by David and Steve Gordon from the 1994 album Sacred Earth Drums. I've been series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Please join us again next week, and please stay tuned for your next regularly scheduled program. <laughs>